Blog Talk Radio. Well, yeah. I'd only done this once before. Actually, when we went down to... Should, you, should we start this with a prayer, you figure? A prayer? <laughs> well, if you no, guys, no. Unseated. This is Unseated Coast Salish Land. And we'd like to you from somewhere in an undisclosed location in the valley. This is Left Turn of the Valley with Kevin and Karen. Hi there, Karen. Hello. And we have our first guest ever. Well, it's a new podcast. What do you guys expect? Jeff Grubin. Hey, Jeff. How you Yay. doing? Hi, I'm, Jeff. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. The crowd loves you. <laughs> it's the shirt I wore. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, Interesting things happening uh, this week in the uh, Abbotsford Mission area. Uh, you want to start with that, Karen? Or what's been going on in the news there? Um, well... Put you on the spot? Yeah. Well, the Abbotsford uh, chicken manure incident keeps going on and on and on, like the Energizer Bunny. We're going to talk about that later on with Jeff. Um, what else is going on? Too many things going on, we can't even think of them right now. Taxes, that's what's going on in my life, sorry. I'm a little bit out of the loop this week. Taxes, <laughs> Can't pay the tax, man. Okay, so uh, like we said, our first guest ever is uh, Jeff Grubin. And uh, Jeff, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, will you? Uh, I always like to say I am just a guy. Um, there's not really that much uh, exciting going on. Uh, I've recently joined uh, the Fraser Valley Atheist Skeptics and Humanists, which has brought a lot of activity for me and kept me real busy. It's been been pretty exciting. Um, Meeting a lot of people in the the area, getting involved in some of the local Abbotsford politics. Um, You were talking about what's going on in the news. Um, I hadn't really, you know, prior to joining the club, spent that much time thinking about you know the, the the government and the municipal government and uh, the council and uh, you know the school board trustees and all these types of things, local elections. But um, getting involved in this group has has got me to think a little bit more about some of the local issues and started uh, trying to follow things a little bit more and getting a little bit more involved. And it's been pretty exciting. So, Ev um, Asher, um, for those of uh, our audience that don't know what it is, what exactly is that group? Um, it's it's you're probably going to get a different answer depending on who you ask. It's really a um, a, a diverse group of people. Um, even if you look at the the name that we have, it's, it's it was hard to really choose one descriptor for us: uh, atheists, skeptics, and humanists. I think the simplest thing to say it's it's a discussion group. Um, we meet once a week, uh, legal grounds on Sunday at, at noon, and we really just get together and talk. I think the the probably the impetus of the group was. Uh, people that um, were not religious, people that did not go to church, people that did not believe in God, and um, that's probably somewhat of a, a, a rarity. Probably more common than you know in the Ab- in the Abbotsford area, but there's not really a lot of venues for us to to get together. So um, I think it was was it Aaron uh, that started the group a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. and he just went online, did a meetup thing. I found I found the group by just googling 
go into Google Abbotsford Atheists, and the meetup thing popped up, and and I found the folks, and um, we basically just get together on Sundays and have some pretty cool discussions about local events. It's pretty cool. It seems that the group is getting more and more active. On uh, you guys just brought uh, Peter Bogosian not too long ago, right here to uh, Abbotsford, you know. Yeah, that was an event we did uh, January 18th. Um, a lot of uh, humanist groups uh, bring in speakers, and I can't remember why we did it. I don't know what the impetus was of, of that, but uh, we contacted him, and he was a, um, a, a philosopher in Oregon. He just recently wrote a book, uh, Manual to Create Atheists, and uh, we called him up. He said he'd love to come up and speak, so it was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, you know... Last summer, you know, there was a bunch of issues in the paper um, regarding the homelessness issue in Abbotsford, and people were wondering what we could do to to help out, and we had various ideas, and uh, we've been trying to get involved and, and see what we can do to help out. It's been pretty cool. It's interesting you point out that you weren't interested in municipal politics before. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, that's not very important, but when you actually look at your daily life, <coughs> municipal politics are probably affect you more than... than federal or provincial, like the homeless issue that there's provincial money for it, but uh, that just stalls at the municipal level and the money doesn't get to the people who need it. I I, I totally agree. Uh, I mean, for me, myself, and again, I, I... I feel a bit embarrassed about this, but you know, Kevin and I were talking earlier about our culture's uh, view on what we think is the most important. And I think most people would think things like entertainment, going to movies, movie stars, sports, uh, you know, watching mm-hmm. sports. These are the things that we revere. That's why these industries make so much money. Yeah. But there's so many more things that are important. The same with politics. I myself spend most of my time watching the U.S. politics, which has... I mean, they're a big effect on the world, so that does have impact on our life. But I would think that, it, for me, I should be more interested in Canadian federal politics and, and then even provincial politics and then even mostly Abbotsford local politics. But it yeah. doesn't seem to be... It seems to be the exact opposite. Well, American yeah. politics are always more entertaining. I mean, if you compare uh, Stephen, I'm an Android Harper versus Barack, I can sing Obama, I, I think right there, <laughs> he kind of tells you exactly what goes on. Yeah. But you're right. That's entertainment then as opposed to people really being involved in the issues. So, yeah, yeah even a group like us who say, boy, we should we should be, you know, Kevin and I were saying, we should be uh, following the scientists and, and, and be more interested in that. But even us who think that way find ourselves falling victim to the enter- <laughs> news yeah. entertainment How rather than real news. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Exactly. I, and I guess you that too. Did you guys hear that uh, apparently in Little Sleepy Mission, they've actually put the shovels in the ground to build a small observatory yeah. in Heritage Park? Yes. I did not hear that, but that, yes. is, that is really yep, cool. That's going to be really cool. Yeah. Apparently, uh, from what the article said, they're, they're still um, uh, trying to get some donation. Uh, apparently, the building is paid for, I think, but they still have some of the... They can have a big telescope and some smaller ones, and also one for the daytime. Uh, but I can't wait to see that happen. And uh, I say out there, if you want to donate to something really cool, I think you know, donating to, to this uh, observatory is a great thing. Observatory. Yes. The, uh, and the, I think I will. The plan is that uh, there'll be smaller telescopes that just the regular public can come in and look and, and observe, and, and and they'll also be used for UFE, and the Rotary Club is heavily involved in that, so if you have any questions, you could contact them. And all, I think all the kids in the area can finally have a great field trip for once instead <laughs> of going to... God knows what they have around here, the next farm over. That's that's really cool. Who's funding that? 
Is that is that a, a nonprofit or is it? A I know. I only know the Rotary Club is heavily involved. I don't know who else is involved. There's so. also the uh, Astronomer Club. Uh, what is it called? There's the there, Valley Astronomy. Yeah, Astronomy Society or something like yeah. that. Yeah, that's that's funding that as well. So uh, they've been working on this for a couple of years. They have yeah. another really cool thing. If you like to stargaze, uh, they have a dark sky park in Chilliwack. Can't remember exactly where it is, but if you Google Fraser Valley Astronomer Society, there's a good web page, and there so the this. Uh, park has no city lights within a certain kilometer radius, so that it's really, really great place to observe stars and uh, asteroids and meteor showers, all those things. So it's it's pretty cool. Might be uh, might be a neat thing for us to do uh, FBS road trip in the summer, maybe. Yeah, that'd Why be not? awesome. Why not? They and they put on public events there and uh, and also member only events, but it's it's a neat society. We're gonna do lots of uh, stargazing today, I think. But for now, I think we should try to do our. Uh, this day in history, what do you think? Hmm. All right, then. I love that music. Well, I, I'm going to do this day in history in a chronological order. So these are all things that happened in March uh, of different years, and it kind of gives you like a, a little walkthrough civilization, sort of. 1781, so in the spirit of science and astronomy. 1781, William Herschel discovers Uranus. Uh, it was the, the first... What? I can't read my writing. Sorry, I can't read your writing. Well, it was thought to be a star before... Yeah. It was thought to be a star because before the telescopes, uh, people you could not see the movement of Uranus. So uh, people, you could see Jupiter move, you could see Mars move, and uh, uh, Mercury and Venus, but you could not see Uranus because it's so far away. You could not actually dis- discern with the eye. So once the telescopes were invented, doing this thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry, you're doing it. I'm the technical support here. Anyway, so that okay, so you discovered Uranus as a planet as opposed to a star, and um, then so that's 1781. 1818, uh, Mary Shelley publishes Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Scary. That's a pretty cool book. And something really interesting is that she's the first female writer of something uh, a horror novel, yes, I believe. Absolutely. She in invented history. the genre actually. That was the first horror novel ever, ever. She was the very first one. Um so Frankenstein's published eighteen eighteen. Then eighteen seventy nine, Einstein is born. Yes. Uh, probably don't need to say much more about him, I think we all know. Then in nineteen eighteen so we go from 1879 to 1918. The first case of deadly influenza is ep- epidemic is reported, of course, Spanish flu. It eventually killed more than 2 million people worldwide. So this is just post-World War One. Everyone's sick. They're tra- crammed into train cars traveling home. They're all weakened from being in the trenches, and it's a horrible... Is it 2 million or 20 million? It says here 20 million. Oh, it's 20 million, then. Which seems like a huge number, I, you know, it feels like there wasn't even that many people left a lot in the of world people. at that time. But Killed a lot of people. Then, uh, in 1930, Gandhi leads the civil disobedience movement. He marches to the sea to collect salt against British orders. And, uh, and he set out with 78 followers to the town of, I don't know how to say it, Dandy, on the Arabian Sea. Big civil movement. And then, in 1938... Germany annexes Austria. <laughs> and then we get to 2003, where the Dixie Chicks face a serious backlash for 
speaking out against <laughs> President George W. Bush. So we put Einstein's birthday and the Dixie Chicks protest in the hey. same. It's historical, okay? Don't critique history. But uh, It kind of shows you the way the world goes, though, doesn't it? Yeah, we just talked about that. I remember that. I remember when they, it's during a concert, they basically said, you know, uh, we, we don't support George Bush. We can't believe George Bush is our president. We're sorry, something like that. And there was a huge backlash. People were, like, burning their albums and stuff. And ridiculous. For years, people wouldn't go to their concert. No, they, they made a comeback now. And something else of interest, in 1990, Gorbachev was elected president of the USSR. Elected mm. president. I remember growing through the Cold War and the thought that at any moment the next war could break out and we'd all be... Vaporized or whatever. I don't think we're old enough to be saying we're part of the Cold War. We're like not Cold War, yeah. Well, we're on the end tail of it. I mean, it's not like we actually were there for. I don't think any one of us was there for like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Doesn't that sort of seem like the whole sort of U.S. Russia tensions are starting to build up again? again? Yeah, I I mean, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's fair to say it's on that same scale, but it just sort of seems like this sort of you know. And I don't think it's Obama-Putin. It's almost U.S. against Putin type of thing that's starting to heat up. I don't think those tensions have ever really gone away. I think the United States likes to think of Russia as their big, bad enemy, and uh, and they just kind of looking for a, <laughs> a release for that tension. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, uh, the one thing I like to always say about the Americans is they like to spend so much money on their uh, their armaments, they need an enemy. You know, well, I thought China was going to sort of rear its head to become that other, you know, opposing world force. The thing is, the United States owes a lot of money to China. They hold the majority of the U.S. debt, so maybe that's not a good strategic target for them. I don't know. So you so, go after them and erase the debt? <laughs> <laughs> so <Maybe>. anyway, <laughs> anyway, we we have, uh, like I said, we have Jeff here. So uh, the reason uh, we kind of brought you here, Jeff, is uh, you're basically... Uh, that sounded ominous. <laughs> <laughs> We're not putting you on the spot here. But you're basically uh, almost an instigator of, <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, the whole chicken manure incident that's happening in Abbotsford. And you've been on the forefront of that since almost day one, really. Well, I would say not the forefront of the chicken manure incident, <laughs> but of trying to find a solution. Yes, yes. And, you know, in your own words, as much as you're willing to say, can you, can you, Bring us back and explain this whole thing from the get-go. Well, I, I got I got involved personally after it had already happened. So I I will tell you what I know of of the history of the of the situation. Um, you know, uh, homelessness I think is uh, an issue that affects every every city to some extent. Um, it's somewhat ironic in Abbotsford because we not only have a homelessness issue but we have the moniker of being the Bible Belt. So you would think in, uh, you know, it's common knowledge that I think most people think that, you know, a good Christian community wants to take care of each other, and it's almost, it's hard to believe that we could have our citizens, um, you know, homeless and sleeping on the street without food to eat, that sort of thing. It's sort of, a, there's an underlying irony to that. So that that's that's the sort of backdrop to, to what's going on. Um, the uh, the tensions of some of these local homeless camps seem to build up, and again, I don't know all the history, but um, I don't think our city was necessarily handling it as well as it could have, and uh, somebody in the municipal organization, I don't know if there was ever anybody that was uh, actually uh, singled out as the one person that pulled the trigger, but 
the, the municipal department basically made the decision to try to move away one of these camps down on um, Gladys Avenue across from the Salvation Army there. And their uh, their strategy was to spread chicken manure all near the camp, uh, like right beside the camp. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's uh, would, you know they were thinking that the smell would drive the campers away. Um, it did drive the campers away. It drove them 50 feet <laughs> down the boulevard, uh, and then they set up there. So that whole incident sparked... Um, pretty much uh, national, if not international, attention. And it actually ended up probably being a really good thing for this, the homeless community because it brought so much attention to it. Uh, you know, locally, all the newspapers, um, the global news, CBC, CTV, all the national news uh, agencies covered it. Um, Ward Draper and the 5 and 2 were doing, they're, they're, you know, they're sort of feet on the street helping these folks. They got a lot of media attention. So it really raised the profile of this uh, local municipal issue uh, on the world stage. That's really the point at which I, I got interested in things, just you know, being sort of a, a dumb, naive guy watching Canucks hockey all the time. I started thinking a little bit more about these local issues. And um, me personally, I just started thinking, geez, you know, what can we do to help? And I, um, I got on the Internet and uh, started looking at little homeless shelters and things like that. And I came across a whole bunch of ideas that people had for alternatives to tents. And um, one of the things we found, um, there was a... Um, a gal named Renette Senum from Nevada City, California, that um, w- together with her community came up with these little mobile shelters. They're like um, like a little mini camper, uh, you know, wheels, and, and you can move them around, and you can sleep in it. There's a little door and a window. They almost look like a solid tent, don't they? Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's been some derogatory terms that people have used to describe them. I, I like to look at it as like a little a mobile sleeping unit or a little mini camper. Or, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of different ideas. Um, well, I don't want to be derogatory about that, but they, they do look like a... It's almost like you you've taken the vinyl off a tent and replaced it with yeah. wood. Yeah, yeah, no, I yeah, I know you weren't trying to, but there have been people that have come up with some you know negative connotations for it. But our our idea was it was an alternative tent, so it was hard sided, uh, unlike a nylon tent. A nylon tent's hard to keep warm because mm-hmm. it doesn't have very good insulative properties. These are made of uh, wood and they insulate a lot better. Um, they're up off the ground, six inches yeah. off the ground, so if there is any water on the ground, you're going to have a better chance of staying dry. They're not uh, you know, a, a lifelong solution, but um, they probably have the same sort of lifespan as a tent, and they, you know, they're just a little bit more comfortable than sleeping in a tent outside. So that was our idea. We borrowed it from some people that have done it before, and we uh, went out to start building them. I, um, I built one myself. I showed the idea to uh, Ward Draper of Five and Two Ministries, he knows this community works with them. He thought it was a great idea, and we came up with a little campaign. Um, uh, you, you know, you yourself, Kevin and, and Karen, you guys donated for the second unit. Um, we had some other folks um, chip in and, and donate some money. We raised a few thousand dollars, um, and then we started sending the units out there. And again, we sort of. Um, I don't know if we, um, we, maybe we were sort of riding the wave of the whole chicken manure media attention. We got a little bit of media attention, and uh, and, and then you know we started um, started sending the units out. We've got a, we've got a handful of them out there right now, and they're still in use today. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah awesome indeed. It's an it's an elegant solution, I guess. Uh, although there's no easy answer to something like this. No, and you know, I mean. Again, we never thought this would be the be-all, end-all. Quite frankly, our whole concept was just to give them uh, a better, warmer um, winter. <laughs> we thought if we if they could last the winter, that would be great. I mean, the units cost 150 bucks, probably about the price of a tent, um, but we figured that would be a little bit more comfortable through the winter, and that was our goal. Um, we've we've moved beyond that, and we um, we're actually looking for other solutions. Um, 
the one that we're sort of focusing on, again, with the goal of improving their current situation, which is sleeping on the side of the street in a tent, um, the concept now is to, to look of a if we can find a place where, where these people are allowed to to, to live. Um, we're kind of um, modeling it after the Dignity Village concept that, uh, that's been going on in Portland for the last 10 years. So it's going to be like a, like a campground, an area, a designated area where these people can live, and you can create cabins, tents, various types of living environments, and then have services in there, shared services for bathrooms, showers, laundry, cooking, that sort of thing. So that's our next goal. Um, and we've we've done a lot of work towards that end, and we're hoping to um, hoping to be able to put something like that together for this year. That's cool. I did some research on the Dignity Village because I didn't know anything about it until I talked to you about it. And I thought a really cool thing about it is that uh, a lot of the buildings that they end up building are, are green technology. I guess that's cheaper, so they use like straw bale houses or they do cob. And the people who live there participate in maintaining all the structures and, and, you know, cooking in the communal area. And everything's like a communal living, so they are invested in it and they take pride in it. And, uh, you know, it, it, becomes, it becomes a home, which certainly sleeping on the side of the road in a tent is not. Yeah, you know, that's I've not been down there. Uh, I've, I've spoken to um, some of the folks on the board and some of the residents there as well uh, at length in, on three occasions. And... And um, that's the thing that I that really struck me is that there is um, pride of, pride of ownership and pride of residence for those people that are there, and um, you know one of the main um, uh, I don't know rules or, or agree, agreements that they make the residents make is they have to put ten hours uh, ten hours per week into the community for for some sort of volunteer work whether it's cleanup security whatever and <clears throat> I think that that's a that's a a real strong component for people to sort of feel like they're part of it, mm-hmm. part of the solution, rather than just saying, here, we're going to create create this community for you. You guys go live there. Um, why not say, okay, well, you, you sign up. You want to live here. Okay, well, we're going to build your house this Sunday. So we get together. We've got the wood. We've got some volunteers. And those, the folks that are going to live there, they come down and help build the build the house. And then maybe they can, you know, once it's all up and built, they can paint it, they can decorate it, and it becomes their house. And I think if they've played that role in actually creating it, it seems to me that they're gonna, there's going to be a pride of ownership and there's a better chance of making them want to make sure it's successful. Yeah, absolutely. That Habitat for Humanity works on that whole principle that people have to be invested in it and they, they help create it. And generally, that they're, they say that the the end result is much more favorable. That people are really invested in it. So, so uh, how many? Do you have any barricades in your way, Jeff? Are, are people going against this? I, it sounds to me like a great idea, but are, are people supporting you? Uh, the po- are the politicians working against you? Uh, wh- what is the, the state of the uh, state of affairs right now, as as far as this project is concerned? Well, the state of affairs of this project is we actually have um, well, there's a there's a privately owned 10 acre piece of property. Um, that the owners have said that they'd be willing to put this up uh, for this purpose. Now, they're not going to give away the property. Um, they've given us access to two acres. Um, just to put that in perspective, the Dignity Village in Portland has one acre, and there's 40, I think there's 40, 40 to 60 people living on that one acre. So two acres gives us lots of room for our plan. Our plan was to have 40 people living down there. So we have lots of room for that. Um, we've got that property set aside. Um, we... Uh, it, it, the zoning is is not bad. It's um, it's zoned residential. It's not in the ALR, which would be a big problem. Um, it's a mile from from downtown, so it's 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 
far enough. One of the things you have to remember is these folks that are living in the street right now, they need to be near downtown for their services, whether it's needle exchange, whether it's shopping, whatever they need, they need to be close to the downtown core. So any proposed uh, living solution for them has to be somewhat has to be within walking distance of downtown because most of these you know, these people aren't driving or anything like that. So the one neat thing about our location is it's one mile from town, so it's within walking distance of town, but it's far removed enough that it's not near any other residential areas, it's not near any other commercial interests, so you're not going to have any <clears throat> um, negative feedback from adjacent residents or businesses that might not want this um, this development near them. So it's it really is a perfect location. We've got that location. Um, the next thing you need is you need you need municipal approval so that you can hook up sewer and water. Um, that's been a barrier, but we believe we've got that tackled. We um, we have one of our folks that's uh, on our society. Um, <clears throat> we haven't formed the society yet, so I won't mention his name, but he's um, got close contacts with um, a lot of the the, um, the uh, city councilors and things like that. And we believe that we can get temporary uh, zone, rezoning. Uh, it's actually not called rezoning. It's called a temporary use permit, which allows us to use this property for this application. We believe we can get that. We believe we can even get um, some help uh, from the city in hooking up the sewer and water. That's our hope. We, they haven't made that commitment yet. But that's been the, the biggest roadblock up until now is, is you know having the city give us the thumbs up for our concept. You know We've had some meetings recently, and, and we think we're there. So we basically got the property. We're hopeful that we're going to get the city's endorsement. We've had some initial funding uh, from some donors, um, fairly significant, and we've even got some uh, some some building materials and, and portable buildings that are, are going to be donated as well. So we've got a lot of the components that we need to get this thing going. Um, we're just uh, we're hopeful that in the next probably four to six weeks we'll we'll be in a real positive position. All right, uh, but it's not the same project. There's another project going on, right? I believe from the Abbotsford Community <coughs> Services. They are they they were trying to build, uh, maybe at the same time that you were uh, going with your project. There, they were trying to build a uh, a building downtown. Uh, was it twenty uh, twenty one beds? Twenty one twenty one beds for 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 the homeless downtown, and that that was met with a lot of opposition in Abbotsford from the business community anyway. Yeah, the uh, the biggest uh, again, I'm not an expert on this, but from what I what I what I know, the biggest issue there was that it was um, the the proposed location for that um, Abbotsford Community Services um, low barrier housing project for 21 beds. It was in the C7 zone. I believe it was on Montrose, um, right near the uh, the liquor barn, sort of behind that um, that. Uh, prom dress place i don't know the exact address but it was within the c7 zone and that zone um there's some specific covenants on that zone and one of the covenants was not to have this type of housing uh, complex in that c7 zone the reason for that was um the the business community uh and the city uh, made an agreement uh, to revitalize that downtown core. If you if you look at the downtown core about 10 years ago, it was all the buildings were vacant. They were all old and run down. It, it, it looks it looked nothing like it does today. If you go down there today, a lot of the the the, the buildings have all been upgraded. They've got nice brickwork on the on the fronts. They've got new little businesses in there. The whole it's a beautiful downtown core with all these niche type of businesses, and a lot of people have invested a lot of money. They invested that money based on the commitment that the city gave them to play by certain rules in that C7 zone. 
So the development of uh, this type of a housing uh, community, you would have had to change that zoning. So, <laughs> whoop, getting attacked here. We've got interference from yeah. a few lines. So, so that was the main objection from the ABD, uh, ADBA, which was the Abbotsford Downtown Business Association. They said that, um, you know, this is the zoning. This this type of uh, facility d- does not comply with the zoning. Uh, we'd love to support it. It just can't be in the C7 zone. So that was the main issue was not the uh, the fact that we were going to do that type of a, a facility, but it was to do it in that location. Again, this becomes the biggest problem for any of these types of housing solutions is where to put it. And uh, that's where we get the acronym NIMBY, not in my backyard. Everybody loves to do good things, but they don't want to have it in, across the street from their house or their business. And that's always the challenge. So, so it's looking from what you're telling me here. It's looking very positive that your uh, quote-unquote dignity village is going to happen. We're very optimistic. Uh, that we, we we feel the only we've got the location. We've got the we've got we've even got we've had uh, discussions with the province. Uh, w- one of the things that 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 the people don't know is that um, when you're on income assistance, it gets separated into two pieces. One piece is for just your basic sustenance, and the other piece is for housing. So these people that do not have an address, they're missing out on between 375 and $500 of, of provincial funding that they could get if they had a, a basement suite or an apartment or something like that. Well, we all know that we can't get a basement suite for $375. So it's it's a tough thing. There's funding available for these people if they have a place to go, but there's no place to go that fit that funding. So that's one of the concepts. If we can put together, we call it Dignity Village or like a sophisticated campground, so it's going to have all the services that, that people need, but they're shared, and then everybody has their own little cabins. But it's going to be a lower-cost type of a living solution than a, than a house or an apartment, uh, and we feel that it'll, it'll fit within the budget of the, uh, of the provincial monies that are available. So um, if we can build this, this facility and get these people signed up, uh, there's, there's provincial money there to support it. So the fact that they would be part of the, they would have a quote-unquote address, although a communal address. Yep. They would get a, a better uh, welfare check, I guess. For yep. like a better yep. word yeah. Yeah. They'd get access and to that additional 375. Yeah. And that would help them actually get back on their feet. Yeah. And, and you know, there's we haven't worked out all the details. I mean, you know, our thought is that this is going to be a drastic improvement from living on the street in a tent with no services at all, no bathroom, no washroom, no shower, nothing like that. So we're going to give them. We're going to provide. I don't want to say give them. We're going to provide. Um, cabins. Uh, we're going to provide washrooms, showers, laundry, uh, shared cooking services. That would be like a sophisticated campground, and um, anybody who's on income assistance, you know, would be qualified to uh, to register there. And um, you know, we've talked to a lot of people. Again, we think that the only uh, the only barrier is getting the thumbs up from the city, but. We're hopeful that, um, you know, we've made a couple presentations. We're going to continue to work with them. We're hopeful that uh, we'll get their support um, in the coming weeks. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it seems like a worthwhile project, and it certainly seems to be uh, it's, it's out-of-the-box thinking. There's been nothing like this done in Canada. Uh, like I said, there's been a couple of projects in the U.S. There's one at the Dignity Village in Portland. I think there's one in Oregon, maybe even one in Washington. Nothing like this has been done in Canada. A lot of people, you know, there's lots of things you can look at negatively. Uh, you know, people have said, oh, geez, it's going to turn into a slum. It's going to turn into a concentration camp, all these types of things. Um, I, you know, That's not the case in, in the ones in the States. It certainly hasn't been like that. Well, if you look at the Portland experience, um, and it may not be exactly the same as what we're doing here, but it's it's very similar. Um, they started in 2000, and I think last year they just re, re, renewed their lease with the city of Portland for three more years. So Portland seems to feel it's it's not something that they want to discontinue. So um, 
we're optimistic about it. And again, you know, I, you know, some people say, well, geez, is that good enough? Is it good enough to put them in, in cabins? Why shouldn't we do something better? Well, yeah, we should do something better. And just because we do this doesn't mean we're not going to try to continue to do things better. I look at this as a drastic improvement of where they are now. Mm-hmm. So it raises the bar of the lowest. Right now, the lowest is they're sitting in tents with with no services. Well, maybe the lowest can be Dignity Village. They've got cabins. They've got, they can, they're, they're secure. They can lock it up. They've got washrooms, showers, laundry. Maybe that's the lowest common thing. And now mm-hmm. let's try to raise the bar. And what can we do to improve that situation? They're not sleeping in six inches of water. Right. And one thing that I think is important is, Anybody, one of the arguments are, you know, certainly there's, you know, we can look at the compassionate argument. Let's just help our neighbors out. Let's do the right thing. Let's help people. Some people don't agree with that. Some people don't want to help and they they think these people are, are being lazy or whatever. Well, there's an economic argument to be made because... Uh, if you look at our chicken manure incident that just happened over the last summer, and then the occupation in Jubilee Park and all the things that the city did to combat that, and there's current people doing lawsuits against the city, we are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars just managing this problem right now. That money's being wasted. These people are just getting pushed around from one side of the, the city to the other. Nothing's getting improved. We're still in the same thing, but we're spending hundreds of thousands of our taxpayer dollars to, in one person's word, boot them around like soccer balls. So the money's being spent right now doing nothing, and I would say we can do better with that money. If we put these people in a a warm, safe, controlled place where they're showering regularly, washing their clothes, that's going to improve their health situation. It's going to probably reduce the amount of sickness that happens. Right now, these folks, if they get sick, they roll into the emergency room, and and that's that's taxpayer burden money. So uh, if these people are healthier and safer and warmer and and well-fed, they're not going to be as sick, and the the, the health costs should go down. So there's an economic argument to be made to do this, even if you don't want to look at the charitable arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also something very interesting about that. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard about Kevin Miller. He's a, uh, a, a film director, and uh, he basically made a movie about this called The Chicken Manure Incident, and he actually screened that, uh, was it a couple of weeks ago, in Abbotsford. There's still some screenings going on. Uh, did you see the movie, Jeff? I did see the movie. I saw it at a church, ironically. Um, <laughs> Were there a lot of people there? Was it screened at the church, like as the congregation? Or? Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was called Northview. I I can't remember. Um, it was a little a little local church in Abbotsford, and there was probably somewhere between seventy five and eighty, maybe a hundred people there. <laughs> and I, I'm assuming it was the congregation. And um, I know they have been screening it at local churches. They're trying to. I mean, uh, Kevin's an independent filmmaker. The, the the film was funded by um, a donor and himself, so I'm sure he's looking at ways to recoup the investment that he made in that film. But um, it's also a, a great piece that um, helps shine a light on this incident. And I think the more people that look at it um, are going to be motivated to, uh, to to try to do what they can to help. That certainly was the reaction of the people that were at that movie. They were like, geez, you know, how can we help? How can we help? Mm-hmm. When I saw it, uh, I was really struck by how... It doesn't take very much, you know, a, a car accident and I can't go to work or something, and there I am on the street. It's it's really not... People like to think, oh, these people have done something wrong with their life. They haven't done anything wrong. They've yes. had bad luck. And uh, you know, they may have made one or two bad choices, but they've had a lot of bad luck, and yeah. we are all susceptible. Most people don't realize that uh, every one of us is like two, three steps away from being homeless. And uh, it takes just a little streak of bad luck, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I... It really I, made it very, very... Made these people 
so much just like, oh, that, that could be my neighbor, that could be me, have really humanized the situation. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the problem, too, is that when you, you know, if you look at the folks that are living on the street, uh, uh, some portion of them have other problems behind, beyond yeah, just absolutely. not having an address. They they might have mental problems, uh, issues. They A large portion of them have uh, drug addiction issues. And I think the 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 uh, naive way to look at drug problems, you you just get this uh, image that they're out partying all the time. It's just it's just a big party. All they want to do is do drugs and have fun. Most of these people, the reason they're doing drugs, uh, is because they were they ha- they suffered some sort of abuse as a young child, yeah. often sexual abuse. And the drugs, well, they might have even been introduced tr- to drugs by the sexual abuser. Uh, and and a lot of times, what the, the drugs are for these people, it's medication. It's medication yeah. to to try to get to sleep at night. It's medication to cover the pain of some sort of uh, injury that they've had in their life. It's medication to cover the fear of getting through the night. Some of these people can't sleep unless they're high because just imagine sleeping in a nylon tent on the side of the street. I don't think any of us would really even be able to get to sleep. We, people would be scared scared to death of someone busting in a tent, smashing us over the head with a hammer, which is the kind of stuff that happens to these folks. So, the it, it's a it's a it's a different perception I think that that the lay person has of homeless people and their drug use than is really what the what the issue is. And um, uh, you know, it's, just, very, it's very easy to judge when you're sitting in a nice, comfy bed. You know? Well, you look. I mean, look. I can tell you my situation. I had loving parents. I have. I have. The, my whole time growing up, I always had two sets of grandparents. So if I was fighting with mom and dad, I could always go go to grandma and grandpa to help me out. <laughs> I, I I always had a huge network of, of support. So that's not something that these people have. They might have come from a broken home. They might have been through the foster care system. Their own parents might have abused them. They didn't have what I had. So. They didn't have the chance that I had. I mean, I could have, like, I slipped and fell as a kid, and, and I got picked up and helped out by my folks. A lot of these people didn't. So um, it's not just a matter of try harder, work harder. Some no. people didn't get the opportunities that, that we did. Absolutely. And I know in the Portland Dignity Village, the because these they have their homes there, and doctors and nurses will come and volunteer their time, and uh, and then, you know, you have access to health care that you wouldn't have if you're just sleeping on the side of the road in a tent, if you don't feel comfortable going to a doctor or you can't get there for whatever reason. It, it helps them in that way, too. Well, right now you have in Abbotsford, uh, you know, there's probably tens, if not, you know, 20, 30 of these camps all throughout the city with, you know, two people living in them, four people living in them, three, five people living in them. If we're able to to get some of these camps consolidated in our Dignity Village concept, it makes it easier to do what you just said, to to bring services to them, Um, whether even if it's donating food. uh, You know, maybe there's a a retailer, you know, like day-old bread. The bread's not usable anymore. They can't sell it. But if there was one one place that they could essentially send this stuff, it's, it's a good way to consolidate that. So that's exactly what we're hoping to do. We're really at the front end of this thing trying to, to put it together, but there's all kinds of cool concepts. One of the neat concepts that we thought about <clears throat> was um, uh, a recycling type of a business. A lot of these people express the interest to work. They, they want to work. So if on the site we could put together a recycling business, um, I, I think of, an example I think of is a bike. You know, I've got an old bike. My kids are grown up. They don't ride anymore, but it's got a broken front tire. Well, I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to Craigslist it. I'll probably just throw it away. But it's a good bike. It's just got a broken front tire. Well, if that got donated to this recycling business, these guys uh, or or ladies that want to work, they could work in the recycling business, maybe take two broken bikes, make one, and they could sell it, sell it on Craigslist and make some money and so generate an income. It could be like a small small business type of opportunity. So 
Um, that's one of the ideas that we have uh, on the property. We even want to do a garden, and maybe there could be we could they could grow uh, vegetables and either for their own use or for sale. So a lot of little yeah. t- the different type of business opportunities that we're looking to uh, incorporate in this as well, not just to generate money, but to give people jobs and, and give them something to do and get involved. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm impressed. I mean, you're a great interview, Jeff. You sure you don't want to take over the show? I mean, frankly, <laughs> at this point. Uh, no, no. I, I, I'm following your guys' lead. I've got uh, good hosts. <laughs> great hosts. <laughs> okay, so um, the future is looking bright, and I guess we'll uh, keep in touch for something like that. Uh, Absolutely. You, you staying with us for the rest of the show, I'm assuming? Uh, yeah, I, I've got nowhere to go. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're going to get into our wonderful segment that I love, and I love to use this one. This is, this is where I use the sound effect, right? <laughs> he just loves his toys. <laughs> okay, it's another brilliant moment brought to you by religion. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. <laughs> Well, I got two of them today. We'll start with the first one. Uh, did you guys hear about the WestJet incident? I did oh, not. You're talking about the napkin? The napkin, yes. This is this is funny. This is a WestJet uh, flight that landed in Vancouver. And uh, while the crew was cleaning up, they found a note written on napkin. And this is signed by David, whoever this guy is. And now the note says this. To Captain slash WestJet. The cockpit of airliner is no place for a woman. A woman's duty, a mother, is the most honor not as captain. I'm just reading exactly what it said. And then it quotes Proverb 31 for some reason. <laughs> and then it says, Sorry, not PC. P.S. I wish WestJet would tell me a fair lady is at the helm so I can book another flight. Yes, you may now face palm. This is in 2014. It just happened right here in Vancouver by some David character. Any thoughts on that? Well, part of me wonders if this could actually be true or if this was someone just, you know, being an idiot and, and well, didn't a, really think that way. Well, it's a true way. idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like, cause does someone actually really think that way in uh, this day and age? But then I think, you know what, it's Probably they do, <laughs> and that's a very sad. Actually, thought. the pilot the pilot happened to be a, a woman, and she took the note and uh, she actually posted this on Facebook, and she had a huge, huge response. And even better is WestJet after that made a video where they're basically encouraging women to fly, and they have all these messages, these encouraging messages on napkins <laughs> in the video. So, uh, kudos to WestJet for doing that's something like that. That's a good like way that. to turn that around. Yeah, and David, wherever you are. Uh, Get a life, dude. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, if you want to go back to the Bronze Age, uh, just hop into a time machine or something. We, we don't need people like that around here. Well, that was number one. I would uh, just like to say that I think David is just probably a sexist idiot who uses his religion as a way to have an excuse for being a sexist idiot. Well, you guys heard about, uh, you, you talked, Kevin, Kevin, you said, I can't believe it in this day and age. Um did you hear about the, it was called Bill 1062 in Arizona? It just got shot down by the governor, but that bill was going to basically protect discrimination yes. based yes. on religion. We talked about that last podcast. Did you? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it, these things happen. These happen. people are out there, and it seems, you know, for those of us who are a little bit more sort of in the 21st century in terms of our thinking, it seems Stone Age, but there are these thoughts out there. People are thinking these things, and... Um, 
it's yeah. scary at times. It's shocking and scary. No, I think what's even more shocking about that story is um, we're kind of used to hearing that kind of stuff coming from our neighbors at the South. Uh, because I always think they're two steps away from being a theocracy anyway. Uh, but in Canada, that's a bit more rare. But even here, uh, we have our religious nutbags. But anyway, I go on. <laughs> I've got another story. Um, this is, do you guys know Kevin Swanson? No. He's a Christian radio host. He's uh, pretty uh, famous in the States. And he's uh, claiming that uh, the movie Frozen, which is the last movie that came out by um, Disney, is a satanic tool for indoctrinating young lesbians. You chose both of these to make my blood boil, didn't I'm you? I'm sorry. No, no. This, this is Going no. after your co-host. <laughs> no, no. This is, this is basically uh, the stories that happened during the week. Uh, now, um, Kevin Swanson, and this is funny because he insists that he's not a tinfoil hat conspiracy guy. He claims that the movie indoctrinates to be a lesbian or bestiality. And I quote, If I was the devil... What would I do to really foul up an entire social system and do something really, really, really evil to five and six-year-olds in Christian families around America? I would buy Disney in 1984 for some reason. That's what he said. And then he goes on and he says, I can see how some parents might be very strong. They don't want their children indoctrinated in any way into the lifestyle of sodomy. Isn't that the pot calling the kettle black or what? How how does this movie um, support sodomy? I don't know. I've actually seen the movie. I, I try not to see Disney movies, but I did see this one, and I was actually pleasantly surprised because it's probably the only Disney movie I've ever seen where the women are strong characters, where they do what they want to do. They maybe are that's his objection. Not, I think that is his objection. They're not. They <laughs> well, don't need the man to save them. They they save themselves. They're sisters. They have a a strong relationship with sisters. Like I don't see. Any negative messages in this, I think this and I usually do see negative messages mm. in Disney movies because they are very, you know, reinforce the stereotypes for girls. But this one didn't. No, I think that's the point. I think this guy didn't actually see the movie. He's just criticizing and making a fuss because if you actually saw the movie, you realize, yeah, there is hugging between women, but they're sisters. They're trying to help each other. They're trying to save each other. There's even a scene where one kind of sacrifices herself for the other at some point. It's not. Nothing has to do with lesbianism and uh, yeah, the bestiality. I mean, I don't even... Aside I, the reindeer we, we, in that movie, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. We probably sat there for 10 minutes trying to figure out what on earth he was talking about. This whole idea, it gets to the, the real misunderstanding of, of sexual orientation. I mean, these people think that a, a, a normal... No, I shouldn't say normal, that's wrong. A, a heterosexually oriented human is going to see imagery of homosexual yeah. oriented people and switch teams i mean that just doesn't understand the, that yeah. totally misunderstands how it works it, people it's not just propaganda or commercials it's it's who you are it's what's in you it's your it's your biology that that dictates what you're interested in and it's just missing the point it's and yeah, it's ridiculous, it is ridiculous. Well, I, i'm pretty I, sure kevin swanson's going to feature again in one of our brilliant moments brought to you by religion you know and uh, well, I'm sure we'll hear from him again, you know, along with Pat Robertson and the likes and <laughs> all that elk. But you're right, and I think that's actually a dangerous thing when they are spreading these messages, and maybe people don't know anyone who's gay, they don't really want to think about it, and they just accept what he says. Oh, yeah, you can turn, you can you can change, the the, the, the world will make you gay or, or lesbian, well, when and so that's a bad thing. And, uh, and yeah, and, and uh, that's an insidious message that uh, really 
It's, it's dangerous. <laughs> He's the dangerous one. When did Kevin Swanson decide to be heterosexual? Exactly. And what prop, what film did he watch that made him decide <laughs> to like girls? I, I think mean, he's thinking way too much about bestiality. Commenting <laughs> about that. I mean, if you're yeah. seeing Reindeer and the first thing that comes to your mind is, oh, bestiality, yeah. <laughs> forbidden fruit, you. Uh, you know, I, I really think, Kevin, you need some therapy here. But, you know, only in the I've used that line on heteros, and you really see them stop and think for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Only in America, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Anyway, (laughs) let's move on. (laughs) Okay. I wanted to do something interesting today. Um, Jeff, did you watch The New Cosmos? I didn't. I hope you're not outing me on the air because I I taped it. I'm, I'm I'm excited about it. I plan. In fact, I on our you know wonderful new PVR that we're renting from Telus. I um, that that was an intentional commercial. Yeah, you no, no, no. I just explaining we what we're doing here. You PVR'd it. Well, you know what? We PVR'd it. We PVR'd the whole the whole uh, series. So yeah, it's going to be right. something we're all excited about. Uh, my son Nicholas is super excited about it, and I will watch it. And I I apologize. I, I didn't. It's watch okay. It. Pretty soon you won't be able to watch the Canucks, so you'll be able to watch that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. They'll be off the air pretty quick. They're yeah. not making the playoffs this year. But yeah. no, I'm real excited. But I have seen. I did see uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson on The Daily Show, uh, obviously doing an interview and a promo for the show. And one thing that I I learned that was really cool was that when Neil deGrasse Tyson, at a very young age, he wanted to be an astrophysicist, and he applied to, I think it was Cornwell Cornwell University, was it? Yeah, that sounds right. I think so. And when he made his application, uh, Carl Sagan was at the university, uh, I don't know in what capacity, but he got Neil deGrasse Tyson's letter and sent a response letter encouraging him to come and gave him this first uh, interviews, I think, uh, at the university. So he was a he was a, an integral part of getting uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson into the university, and it was just a cool little bit of history. Between actually, those two. Uh, in, yeah. the, in the episode, when you do watch it, spoiler alert, for yeah. those of you who haven't seen it, Neil actually refers to Talks that. Talks about that, yeah. And he actually shows uh, also uh, his, uh, his daily planner where he actually... Uh, writes down that he's meeting with uh, with Carl Sagan and Carl Sagan's meeting with him. It was it was almost an emotional moment actually. It, it, I feel emotional thinking about it. It's very cool. It's a, it's an awesome piece of history. I'm sure he's one of his pr- probably proudest moments if he looks back. Now, if for those of you who if you don't know what we're talking about, and that means you've been living in the moon hey, in a cave. Hey, no, you know what? I I only knew Carl Sagan's name. I didn't really know no, anything no. about Carl Sagan for the until like. I'm just two saying years if they ago, don't know so. what Cosmos is. Cosmos was a wonderful TV series that started Carl Sagan. Uh, and uh, what year well, was that? Made him famous. Um, you remember what year? Sure. Oh, it was it, w- it was a couple of decades ago for sure. And uh, it, it was yeah, early '80s, maybe. I think so. Yeah. But it, it launched. Uh, it was trying to inspire people to go into science. And uh, if there's one thing I could say about Carl Sagan, is he, although he was mocked left and right center by the, the religious groups, he was nothing less than a scientist and a poet uh, on screen. And actually, before we uh, get into that, because I want to do a, a bit of a, a spot on um, on uh, interesting people uh, that have advanced science and uh, intellectual quests and stuff like that. And uh, in, instead of talking <laughs> about... Intellectual quests and stuff like well, that. Yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what we're going to call this yeah. segment. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like a daily show John Stewart <laughs> yeah. uh, segment. Thank you. I'm signing autographs later. Uh, <laughs> I, I just wanted to put a spotlight on some of these uh, people that have advanced some of these causes instead of talking about Britney Spears 
and, uh, and 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 you know Jessica Simpson and stuff like that because I think too many of us are, are looking to these people while we should be looking to more people like Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson, Lawrence Krauss, Richard Dawkins, etc., etc., etc. So I've got here um, this is like three minutes. It's called Pale Blue Dot from Carl Sagan. You guys know this obviously, but if you don't, you you should really pay attention to this and watch it. It's uh, you'll understand what I mean when he says he's a poet. From this distant vantage point, the earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives the aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known.
Sorry about that. How do you sound now? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. I've been cut out. <laughs> no, sorry. That's not for you. Well, that was for Carl Sagan, really. I'm not saying you're being cut out. You're being applauded then. I said he gave me goosebumps. Yes, yes. And uh, the imagery that they put on the video is uh, very good, too. This uh, The pale blue dot they refer to is an image that was uh, taken from Voyager 1 as it passed, uh, I believe, around Jupiter and turned around and took a picture of the Earth, and all you see is a vastness of gray, and there is a blue dot. and It represents it's the Earth. And it's a very famous picture if you haven't seen it. And this entire monologue he does there is to kind of put us put a perspective of where we're at. And uh, anyway, I just thought that if you need to know about somebody, Carl Sagan is certainly somebody you should be uh, trying to uh, learn more about. But we got Karen here to tell us about all that anyway. Oh, well, Carl Sagan, I have, I have a little biography of him. Um, he was professor of astronomy and space sciences and director of the Laboratory for Planetary Studies at Cornell University. Yeah, Cornell. Um, he played a leading role in the American space program since its beginning. He was a consultant and advisor to NASA since the 50s and uh, briefed the Apollo astronauts before their flights to the moon, which is pretty cool. And he was an experimenter on the Mariner, Viking, Voyager, and Galileo expeditions to the planets. Um, he helped solve the mysteries of the high temperatures of Venus and the seasonal changes on Mars and the reddish haze on Titan. And so f- he, he received all sorts of awards, a NASA Medal for Exceptional Science Achievement and twice for Distinguished, sorry, distinguished Public Service. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he has a, there's like a whole paragraph long list of all the awards that he's won, but I thought it was pretty cool that he's actually won um, the Konstantin, I don't know how to say it, Silikovsky Medal of the Soviet Cosmonauts Federation. So he was that good that he even won as an American medal from the Soviet Union. Very cool. Yeah. Um, uh, he trained both in astronomy and biology. He made uh, just amazing contributions to the study of planetary atmospheres, planetary surfaces, the history of the Earth, and exobiology. Um, and it says, many of the most productive planetary scientists working today are his present and former students and associates. Well, that's not true because he's dead. But <laughs> <laughs> former students and associates. Former. Yeah. Um, yeah. He also had an asteroid name after himself. Did he? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, when it, listening to that uh, that bit you placed there. Um, I'm reminded of uh, the, the, these words he would always speak in, during the the show Cosmos: billions and billions of mm-hmm. years. The way he said that was was so cool. Yeah, I, I find it uh, disturbing also that uh, a lot of uh, Christian right wing thinkers will use that as a, as a mockery. You know, billions and billions, and you know, you know, you're not realizing that you're mocking. What, what I thought was a great man. You know. yeah. Yeah, of course. He's he definitely left man. his mark on on, uh, on on science and on everything. So if you haven't seen the new Cosmos, you really need to. It plays Sunday at 9. It yeah. plays on Global and Fox, of all. Who would have thought? Fox <laughs> would actually broadcast Cosmos. Did you hear about that uh, controversy where they... 
cut some. They cut out yeah. some of the Seth. Uh, Seth MacFarlane is the producer of that show. He was on Bill Maher last night, which is pretty cool. Check that out if you haven't seen it. Uh, and he said, Bill Maher said to Seth, "Geez, isn't that a coincidence that uh, what was it in Oklahoma? Or Oklahoma, something? yeah, yeah, Oklahoma. You know, the broadcast cut out the evolution bit." He goes, "Well." I asked them about it, and they said it was a mistake, it was an accident. So he goes, next week's show, which is going to be tomorrow, is going to have even a bigger piece on evolution, so we'll see if it happens again. <laughs> so he said, I'll take a bit their word for it. It was technical difficulties, but if it happens again, hmm, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I can't wait to watch it. So, I don't know. The first episode I thought was, it's inspiring. And you it's watch this. You know, you're in awe of the, the, the magnitude of what we know already in science, but even worse is what we don't know. DeGrasse Tyson, too, just like uh, Carl Sagan, he's more than just a scientist. He's a, mm. he's a, he's a, a personality. So like Carl Sagan, you said he was a poet. Uh, he, he was very dramatic, and he was a very compelling speaker. DeGrasse Tyson's the same way. There's an enthusiasm that he has uh, in, in the way that he presents the information, and I think it makes it more accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's a popularizer of science. Is that a word? But not just he, we'll it's not like he, he dumbs it down, but he makes it accessible so that people yeah. can really understand it. And, and when you understand it and understand how amazing it is, then you just want to learn more and more and more. And that, that's an amazing talent above and beyond being a scientist. It's, it's a great legacy he left. Uh, I mean, you learn stuff every day about him. I learned today, uh, before we do this podcast, that uh, he uh, wrote the book uh, Contact, uh, oh, yeah. the, the movie with Jodie Foster, yeah. which is one of my great favorite movies. Yeah, and uh, th- this is why uh, there's this really poignant scene where she's, you know, traveling or maybe traveling through space and that's exactly the line she uses they should have sent a poet to describe this because she couldn't describe it because it was so magnificent and that's exactly the feeling you get when you talk about Carl Sagan after a while it's cool I hope he reignites a passion for science I was talking to my 16 year old son about and this is before my time too but when in the in the 60s when there was a race to get on the moon and science was all new and all amazing and everyone was interested in that and passionate about it a whole nation of people you know united behind this expedition to go to the moon and and since then there have been extraordinary things we've you know sent the Mars rover out and and extremely cool things that are happening but no one seems to talk about it anymore, yeah. and and it would be really nice if we could reignite that passion and and have a, a communal dialogue as a whole society. Well, our our uh, this is a bit puzzling, and I'm not sure what to do about it. But like like our young, the young, exciting minds that would you think want to be astronauts or into astrophysicists, what are they doing? They're probably want to work at Facebook or Google or EB Games or not EB Games. Uh, What's that game? Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts. EA. EA. Yeah. EA Sports or whatever. That, that's what these people, these technically minded, interested people. That's what they're doing. They're getting into, you know, video games and social media and applying their skills that way. It's. It would be nice if there would be some sort of a movement to try to, yeah, mm-hmm. energize that that type of uh, young person into into the sciences. I think that's what Seth MacFarlane is trying to do with the the reboot of Cosmos. Karen is right. You know, at that time there was. The, the dreaming aspect. People were looking towards the stars. Everybody wanted to be Optimism, astronauts. Everybody yeah. wanted to, was excited about the future. Now, when the uh, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s came in, the uh, very right conservative movement came in, and now it was, you know, get rich or die trying. And we're still there. And we need to get, we need to shake that off and go back to that mode of where we were dreaming for the future. 
And because we need that, we, we can't we can't go on the way we've been going. Can I say something really geeky about Star Trek at this point? Star Trek. <laughs> I mean, when Gene Roddenberry created it, it was that it was this great vision of the future, and he had interracial relationships, and he had you know these women who were strong and in positions of power, and all those things that were just like brand new. You're such and, a feminist. And and then when we the the last one that was made, not Voyager, I can't even remember what it's called because I only watched like two episodes of it. They're going back, and it was all it was it was like this. The Vulcans are against us, and everyone's against us, and and we have to like. It, it was a totally different feeling, l- less of of this great optimism, and more of this. I've got a grudge against the Vulcans, and I'm going to show them. And, and I just thought Gene Roddenberry probably wouldn't you mean like this. The last series of Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was that was the Enterprise one, wasn't it? No, no, no. Oh, yeah, the, with like the original Enterprise with uh, Scott. What's his name? Bacula. Yes, Scott Bacula. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, the, you mean the the most recent movie? No, the no, most no. recent series. series uh, oh, TV yeah. Series, which I don't think is running anymore. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen. I, I think yes, the see. last <laughs> the last series I watched was the Patrick Stewart Next Generation. Yeah, one, yeah. Which, same which here. Was same pretty here. cool. I never which, watched. There was a couple of them after that. Voyager I, was after yeah. that. Deep Space Nine, and yeah. then this one Gene, whose name I can't remember. Gene Roddenberry died during the uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Yeah. And then they took this weird turn, this uh, Deep Space Nine, this weird religious thing to it. I couldn't stomach it. It was like, oh come on. <laughs> the probably the problem that we have is, you know, I don't think money was as much of an issue back when Kennedy said we're going to the moon. Money, you know, you know like affordability and that sort of thing. Now it's all about budgets and money and mm. and and cost cutting and all this sort of stuff. And and I just I, I worry that the economics, the economic problem is going to stifle a lot of this stuff. Like there could be a resurgence if it was like, hey, you know, like if the if NASA said we're going to Mars. And 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 it was like a national campaign, like the race to Mars. You know, mm. the Russians were going to China. And who's going to get to Mars first? And it would be this competitive thing that, not like we're warring with these people, but we're we're in a race. It's like a competition. Russia and China and the states are all trying to get to Mars, and that could be that kind of a. It, it could reignite that, but it's like the economic climate in the world would never prevent allow that right now. Except for the American budget for the military is what? Like billions of dollars? I don't even yeah. know. But uh, just redirect half of that to your science programs and then maybe... <laughs> you you still, it takes us back to religion though because um, these the, the a lot of the drive behind the electorate and the, the economy and, 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 and where funds get directed... They don't think that they don't think that science is important. I mean, they they don't want to do stem cell research. They don't but, yeah. care about global warming because they think that the planet's going to end in their lifetime, anyways. Half mm-hmm. half of them down there. So, I mean, if that, that's where you know this religious thinking, it's it stifles yeah. the ability to do a lot of this and stuff. It's a shame because it's a great economic argument. Because I believe uh, I can't remember uh, the the. the the kid who said that on TV because he was a young scientist up and coming, but he said that uh, for every dollar you invest into science, you get back about a dollar forty in new developments and new products and new merchandise and that kind of stuff. So that's a great investment. That's not just a uh, you know one one pro one is already good, but a dollar forty is amazing. It seems though that our 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 whole culture is immediate. Immediate fulfillment and immediate pleasure. You know, everything's public companies, and it's like the next quarterly report. So, an investment in in this, you know in space exploration might not uh, have fruits for five or ten years. Yeah. So that might be too long for people. Everybody wants to know. Okay, well, if I'm going to invest, uh, you know, uh, two hundred million dollars in a project, I want to see at least returns in the next couple quarters. And I don't know if you get that kind of turnaround. In, in we, just, we just need another Carl Sagan. 
Not a lot of seeing into the future. I, there's You mentioned stem cell research, and I read an article. Uh, this is a couple of years ago, so I'm not sure if things have changed. But um, even the funding that science does get, there was a lab that was doing stem cell research and and other research. So So some people weren't because of the religious backlash against stem cell research, um, these scientists had like, it was like they took a marker and drew their, a line down the middle of their lab, so this equipment over here can be used for stem cell research, but this equipment over here cannot. This, you know, this lab coat has to stay on this side and that lab coat stays on that side and they do not cross. It's like a kosher kitchen, but uh, it's just such a waste of time and effort for these scientists who just want it. You just for the like most completely part, left on a tangent here, didn't I you? I did, but it, it, these people really, they, they, they're passionate about what they do, they want to help and... <laughs> I can cut off again. No, no, no. The show's just going into the gutter all the time. You're making a great point. I mean, even the money that is allocated to science is being abused because of the way they have to manipulate things politically. And I'm done, and you can... <laughs> She's giving me a death look. I love the Benny Hill reference, though. I just That was a great show. <laughs> he was a wonderful scientist, too. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> not, not really a feminist. <laughs> okay, I guess uh, we're heading towards the end of the show here, so I guess it's time for my rant, right? Is it? Uh-oh. Should I cut you off? There's a reason you've got all the That's dials. Why I, I, I have the dials. <laughs> the, fra- the francophone gets the rant? Yeah, you bet. I will use my phony French accent. What he does best. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What did it take? An, what did it take an atheist? The problem of homelessness is as old as society itself. And in the 21st century, we like to think that it's a problem we should have solved by now, especially in a first world country like Canada. The reality is quite different. Homelessness is actually on the rise in our major cities, and places like Abbotsford have not escaped it. Although the technology, psychology, and overall science to help the less fortunate has evolved, the political will to help thy neighbor in Abbotsford has virtually stayed the same since ancient Rome. Just about every conversation out there starts with the familiar, oh, I'd really like to help solve this problem, but... And then the excuse come rolling in. Everything from, they don't want to be helped. It's too costly and we don't have the money. It's really the government's fault. Add to that the occasional study to solve the problem, tossed out in order to score points with potential voters. And the entire gamut of political ideology comes in, resulting in lots of talk, little to no concrete action. People are still suffering. Repeat, process later. Einstein did say that the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So either the people of Abbotsford are insane, or they simply don't want to help the homeless. Judging by the sad saga of the chicken manure incident that's still playing out, the latter is my hypothesis. But here's the kicker. No, you can't interrupt me, I'm doing a rant. Abbotsford is known as the buckle of the Bible Belt of B.C. There are numerous denominations of Christianity represented in Abbey, which hold more churches per capita than anywhere else in the country. And last I checked, the Christian God, a humanist and humble Jewish carpenter that preach, quote, Give to everyone who begs from you, and of him who takes away your goods, do not ask them again. 
And as you wish that men would do unto you, do so to them. And take care of the least of these. Unquote. Seems to me that good old Abbotsford isn't listening. So while the politicians are debating in endless committees, businesses are holding on to the cash, and the faithful are praying for manna from heaven, it took an atheist and a street preacher in a van to see beyond their differences and come up with a solution. A man-made solution for a man-made problem. These men have showed the way if Abbotsford residents really care about their their street neighbors as ordered by their deity, they will put together, they will put this, sorry, they will pull together and this will be resolved before the end of the year. If we, if not, we'll truly know what Abbotsford worship and it's the almighty dollar. Thank you. What were you trying to tell me? I couldn't hear you. You couldn't hear me? No, you were out of my mic. Or my earphones, but it doesn't matter. The sound is low. I sure hope it's... Oh, well. We'll see. We'll have to maybe have to edit this or something. Edit you? I don't know. I, I think that's against the policy of this ra- this broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey! Okay, so that's pretty much towards the end of our show. What's coming up? Uh, anything coming up? Jeff, I believe you guys are bringing somebody else, aren't you? Yeah, uh, uh, our our group FVASH has uh, decided to the the Peter Bogosian event that you referred to earlier in the show uh, went so well that we decided uh, to to try to make it uh, a quarterly um, presentation. So we've got um, uh, Professor Eugenie Scott coming in. She's from the National Center for Science Education in the U.S. and she's coming to speak at UFV on March 28th, uh, room B101 at 7 p.m. She's going to give a lecture there. And um, we have uh, Richard Carrier scheduled for June and Phil Zuckerman scheduled for the fall. I think September, October, we haven't really nailed that down. But we're hoping to put on quarterly, lect- quarterly lectures and, um, and, and, and start a lecture series uh, in Abbotsford. That's awesome. I'm really excited about that. Peter Gosian was fantastic, well attended, and uh, lots of interest from the crowd. And I'm sure this one is going to be just as great. Awesome. And uh, I also have to do a bit of housework here, and I have to say that uh, we have an email address. If you guys want to send us some hate mail or some love mail or some just suggestions or just tell us to go somewhere else, doesn't matter. It's uh, left at valley at outlook dot com. Left at valley, you know, left a t at valley at you know a with a circle. <laughs> outlook dot com. We don't have a Facebook page yet or a, or a Twitter account yet, but we're working on it. So send us your requests, your emails, your hate mail, anything you want. We'll try to put them on the air. Anything else you want to say about this? Thank you very much, Jeff, for coming and spending this afternoon with us. Absolutely. Great to have you. Thank Thanks you. for having me. It was a lot of fun. Uh, good luck with the show, guys. Well, I sure hope you come back, Jeff. I mean, uh, love to, love to. Yeah, you've you got a good voice. There. You, can, you can email us if you He's think. He's not just a pretty face. He's no, got a great I know, voice I know. Too. If you really think Jeff should take over the show, <laughs> send us an email. And uh, maybe we'll call it the Jeff Grubin Show. But in the meantime, we'll see you again in about two weeks. Until then, have a good day, Joe. That was pretty cool. <laughs>